All right, well, we are in Matthew chapter 5. If you, um, the, the scripture today will be up on the screen, but I would encourage you that if you, if you don't have a Bible, please grab one before you leave. If you don't own a readable Bible, we have them at the front and the back of every section. You can grab one. If you don't own one, please take it with you as our gift to you. Um, and then they're always available there in case you get here and you're like, oh, I forgot, I forgot my Bible and I'd like to have a, a paper Bible um, in front of me. Then we have those available for you. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, we're in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we are in verses 17 through 20 today. And I will tell you that I, I told, I whined to my wife, um, I guess I, I wasn't whining, I just was explaining how I was feeling, and it happened to be a little whiny, um, that I feel like... like Jeff got salt and light, and I get the Beatitudes in one sermon, and now I get, I look at this passage, and I think, man, this is like one of the hardest passages to me. And so I, I started, you know, as I was reading and studying and everything, um, I found some comfort in the fact that many other scholars begin their discourse on this passage of saying, this is one of the most challenging passages in all scripture. I'm like, see, I get all the hard ones. And next week, I get to talk about anger, lust, and divorce. So, um, and then ne the following week, uh, Jeff gets to preach about puppies and rainbows. So <laughs> I don't, I, I feel like it's unbalanced a little bit is all I'm saying. So, um, so this is it, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that is heavy. And we have to ask the question, okay, what, what is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean? And so we need to just quickly run up to it and remember that, that this is a message that has kind of a unifying point to the whole Sermon on the Mount. These three chapters, Jesus is orienting them around the kingdom and telling them the kingdom. And in, um, earlier in Matthew, he is announcing the coming of the kingdom. And so he is explaining to them and teaching them about what the kingdom of God is like, the nature of the kingdom, and who we are as part of that kingdom. And so he has announced the kingdom, it has come, it is here, he is reorienting them around this kingdom, and he's telling them about the nature of the kingdom. Two weeks ago, we said that in the first section, the Beatitudes were to both confront and to comfort. They confront the way of the world. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, as the world would say, well, no, 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 bless the, the people who are blessed are the ones who take hold of things, the people who, who are confident, who are powerful. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 those who are poor in spirit, who are humble, who are meek, who mourn, they are the ones who are blessed because theirs is the kingdom. 
So it confronts the way that the world thinks the world should work, the way the world thinks that the kingdom of God should work, and he gives the nature of the kingdom. And that is a comfort then to those of us who look around and do feel poor in spirit, who do feel like maybe we aren't holy enough, or we haven't been good enough, or we haven't done enough, and that Jesus is speaking to those people, and he says, be blessed. Yours is the kingdom. The kingdom has come, and it is for one such as you. And then Jeff did a great job last week talking about how we are to live as God's people, as kingdom people, so that others would see our Father, would glorify our Father in heaven, that we are to be salt and light, that we are to be spread out, I like how he um, worded this, but we're, we are spread out to positively affect the world around us. Like we are, we are spread to let people know the kingdom has come to earth, and the kingdom came to earth in Christ and now is present in Christ's body, the church. Now, all of this would have been very disorienting to people. They would have wondered, okay, so you're, you're kind of redefining things here, Jesus. Like, this isn't exactly, this is not what the scribes and the Pharisees have been talking about. They have not been, um, they've not been talking about the same things that you are talking about. So they would have wondered, like, does this mean you're getting rid of everything that's come before? Right? Does it mean that, you, that you're just abolishing everything, that you're canceling everything out? Is this like just a big restart? Is it a big do-over? Is God saying, like, well, never mind, just kidding, here's Jesus instead? Or is there something else going on? And that's when Jesus answers. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And that key statement is the setting for this whole section before he goes on to teach about how he is fulfilling them and how he is deepening their understanding of what God has required of them. And so the questions I want to answer are, one, how, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? How does that actually happen? And then address an objection that will arise to it and then how are we supposed to live in light of this? God, help us as we deal with this beautiful passage, but difficult passage. Give us humility and softness and heart. Give us renewed minds and give us eyes to see what is good and beautiful in your kingdom. Amen. So he says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, how? Well, first, he fulfills it in that everything in God's word points to him. So Jesus says, I didn't come to wipe out the law and the prophets, but I want to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill them. And so the part of what that means is that everything in Scripture, everything in the Old Testament, that what we call the Old Testament, what they would have called the Scriptures, everything points to to Jesus. One of our favorite verses here is John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but is they that bear witness about me. He is the fulfillment of all of the promises. He is the deliverer. He is the Messiah. 1 Peter 1 says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I think Peter needs to go be a kindergarten teacher because that's one of those statements where you're like, hey, explain it to me like I'm an eight-year-old. And then you read it as an eight-year-old. Nope, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. All right. So what he's saying there is saying, hey, concerning salvation, listen, all the prophets have been wondering when is this going to happen and how is this going to happen? All these things that God had given them to tell God's people, they're wondering when. And Peter says it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what we see is that now, because of Jesus, we read the Old Testament differently. We read all the scriptures differently because we have seen what the prophets of old were just hoping for. We have seen, like when the prophets are saying, you're delivered, God is your deliverer, he is your people, he will secure you. The people were always left to go, but how, when? And then in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see it. These are things that angels have longed to look into. We get to see it. And so whenever we read scripture, part of what Jesus is adapting or saying and talking about the scriptures is saying that it is all pointing to him. And all scripture should be read through the lens of Jesus. In part, this means like this is why we read the Old Testament the way that we do, that the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. We don't just look at the Old Testament as a book of principles and, and proverbs and things and ways that we're supposed to live. And, and we don't look at the heroes of the faith. We've talked before about we don't look at the story of David and think like, okay, I need to be more like David. We read the story of David and Goliath and we realize that David is pointing to Jesus and that we need Jesus. Like all of it is pointing to him. And that not only is the prophecies, but it also includes his life, as he says he didn't come to abolish the law. Part of what he's saying here is that he's then the manifestation of the perfect law. He models true obedience. So he is not only the fruition of all that the prophets had proclaimed, right? but he is also, he is also the manifestation of what it looks like to live the life that God has called us to, to be people of the kingdom because he is the king. And so that's critical when we read Scripture because it's, there's not a part of Scripture that Jesus does not manifest. He is the Word, right? He is love. He is justice. He is righteousness. He is truth. Well, why does that matter? Well, one quick example is any time that we say, well, I'm about the truth, but that truth is not loving well, then we are not defining truth the same way Jesus is defining truth. Right? If, we, if we define loving in a different way than Jesus defines loving, then we are not loving. We are something else. And so he is, whatever our definition is of any of these things, justice or mercy or kindness or compassion or love or, or holiness, any of those definitions should be manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we read it, we read it through him. I mean, think, how can you have a lesser view of what 
loving your enemies means, or a greater view of what loving your enemies means than, than when you see him on the cross asking for forgiveness for his murderers. Like, we can't redefine these things apart from Jesus. So far from doing away with it, he demonstrates it. And so it is through Jesus that we understand what God's word means. He has come to fulfill it. He also fulfills it by affirming the authority of his word, of God's word. He says, Matthew 5, 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He says, not a single thing. So they're saying, are you going to get rid of all of this? He goes, no, not only am I not getting rid of all of this, I'm not getting rid of any of it. Not anything. He doesn't even lessen it a little bit. He actually deepens it. Nothing is passing away until everything is accomplished. God's word is just as true now and was just as true when Jesus came to earth as it always had been and, it, and it, as it always will be. It isn't less true as time goes on. It isn't archaic. It isn't outdated. It did not fail to foresee circumstances in the world that now have changed the way that we understand what God is saying to us. He doesn't change. His word doesn't change. Now, we go through all kinds of modes of interpretation and understanding. And you can go through church history and find different times where, where the church has, has misunderstood and misinterpreted and, and not lived out correctly what God's word actually says. And so we are fallible, but God's word is not. And Jesus is saying nothing of God's word is going to pass away until it is fully accomplished. And we tend to look at it and say, okay, well, I know, but I, I need to like interpret this and change it like god god's word needs to change it's a big thing right now like well you know god changes with everything and and i would just say no he doesn't that's a whole other sermon but let's just i'll sum it up with this he doesn't change okay and his word doesn't and some will try to oversimplify his teachings and i hear this all the time some will try to oversimplify his teachings and say well you know what really jesus just taught about being kind and being loving and so, you know, that's just what we need to do. Or they'll go the other way and say, you know, Jesus stood for truth. And so that's really, that's really the most important thing. And we try to simplify it in a way that Jesus does not. We define those things differently. Jesus already simplified it for us. He simplified it for us in the great commandment when they asked, what is the greatest commandment and he says to love the lord your god with all your heart soul and your mind and he said the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself but that was not to be redefined in our terms the great commandment commandment helps us understand the point of everything he commands why god commands what he commands but he also will go on in the sermon even next week when we talk about that you have heard it said this, but I say this. So you say, do not murder, but I say, do not have anger in your heart. You say, do not commit adultery, but I say, do not have lust in your heart. He tells us what it means to love God and to love our neighbor. Does that make sense? So he doesn't minimize the law and the prophets by putting it in the great commandment. He, he gets it down to its essence and it says, this is the root of everything and everything flows out of this. Loving the Lord your God and loving your neighbor as yourself as God has defined that. And in doing that, he's speaking with authority. 
He's giving renewed authority, not adding to the authority of God's word. God's word is always authoritative, but he's affirming it, saying, no, I haven't come to abolish it. Like I've actually come to fulfill it. And one of the ways he's fulfilling is that authority. They would later say in Matthew, at the end of the sermon, and when everyone's done, they said, um, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Which makes sense that he would teach the word of God with authority, seeing how he is the word of God. So that kind of gives him that place to be able to do that. It is authoritative. What Jesus is about to say, how he is about to clarify and deepen and add depth and flesh to the commands of God, that what he's doing there is he's saying, this is, has authority. Nothing is going to pass away. He's not predicting what will happen because all things were created through him. He isn't philosophizing about the best way of lit to live. He is the way to life. He isn't promoting an earthly kingdom full of false, false promises like we see with politicians. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He is the creator telling us how we were created. He is the king telling us how the kingdom functions. That's authoritative. And finally, he fulfills it by bringing about true obedience in God's people. Right, so he, he's the manifestation of it. He's what it all has pointed to. He's affirming the authority of it. And now he's fulfilling it by bringing about true obedience in God's people. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, it is tempting to fall into one of two ditches with this. One ditch is to say, right, so that means you have to obey the law perfectly, and that's when you are acceptable in the kingdom's eyes. And so you turn it into a form of works righteousness. And the other ditch is to say, it was all a false promise. The whole point of the whole thing was just to get people to be like, wow, who could do that? And be like, ah, exactly. That's why I'm here. Which is, both of them have part partial truths in them but when we fall into one of those ditches we get into real trouble i don't think either ditch is the case rather i think he is saying i think he is saying obedience matters not that we are saved by works but we are saved to be his people and his people do the good works of the kingdom right so john 14 15 if you love me you will keep my commandments many 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 pages have been written to try to figure out how Jesus did not mean, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But I'm pretty sure he meant, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In Matthew 5, 16, even in the Sermon on the Mount, right before this, he says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. What is that light? He says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the plan for God's redeemed people is for us to live as God's redeemed people, to tell other people what our God is like, not only by what we say, but how we live. This is what you will hear all the time here. Jesus did not come to rescue sinners and leave us as sinners. That is not our identity. He gives us a new identity and calls us to walk in it by faith. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
And again, take up his cross. People often think of like, that's just inconveniences in my life. Like my cross, my cross to bear is that I am slow. Right? I would just, as I'm coaching athletes right now, I'm always reminded of like, man, how slow I was and how that really kept me from doing other things in, in athletics. And so I'd be like, ah, oh, that is my cross to bear. I am slow and weak. That is not my cross to bear. I am slow and weak. I always have been, but I am not, that's not my cross to bear. Oh, my cross to bear is that my spouse is really annoying. My cross to, not me, that was for you, that was not me. <laughs> These are things I hear around the house, I just like, they get in my head. That my cross to bear is this difficult job. My cross to bear is this disability or this illness. Those are burdens that we share with one another But that is not what Jesus is talking about. The cross means death. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and die and follow me. I think this is what's so daunting about this passage. Like it's one thing that Jesus came as a fulfillment of the law and prophets. Everyone's like, yes, amen, love that. It's that he came to fulfill everything in God's word, to give flesh to it. Yes, amen, we love that, to show what it really means. Yes, amen, we love that. But then to say that we are called to obey it, that's hard. And all of a sudden, everything that he says matters. What he says about taking care of the poor matters. What he says about sexuality matters. What he says about life matters. What he says about marriage matters. What he says about our money matters. What God says about the church matters. Which is why it's so amazing that he said all this boils down to loving God with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. That is true for those who love God and their neighbor as Jesus defines it and demonstrates it. For people who are kingdom people, then doing that and pursuing that will result in obeying what he has commanded. Let Let me give you an example. One of the ways that we're told to love one another is to confront one another in our sin because sin brings destruction. And we don't want our brothers and sisters to be destroyed. We want them to have life. And so if we love people the way Jesus has commanded us to love people, we will say, brother, sister, I'm worried for you. You you are in rebellion or you seem to be going down a path or I don't know if you're seeing this clearly. To both call out sin in our brother's or sister's life, but then to also receive that calling out. And the question would be, are you willing to call out your friends in the church on gossip as much as you are willing to call out a culture on issues of gender and sexuality? Like, are you willing to repent and be open to conviction about your own self-righteousness as much as you are willing to confront the sin of an addict or the sin of someone whose sin really inconveniences you? See, often what we do with the word and with Jesus' commands is we like to stay in a world where we can just talk about what he says. Just talk about what the Bible says. Read it, talk about it, apply it to someone else. It's the unholy trinity of evangelicalism. 
And we are all guilty. We're all guilty. We read it. We talk about it. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, I like that. Oh, that's new. I didn't thought, thought about that. Oh, you know who really needs to hear this? We're so good at it. And so much of our time and Christian culture is spent wondering why people who don't believe in God and don't know God, why they don't obey God. It's quite silly when you think about it. When that's not who Jesus is talking to, he's saying, if you're in the kingdom, this is what is called of you. Robbie often asked, what about instead of Bible study groups, we had Bible obedience groups? What if we read the Bible not just to learn new interesting things or to bolster our arguments, but we actually expected that we would be challenged by the words of God and that we sought to obey it in faith and sought the help of one another to do that? Jesus is giving a deeper understanding of the scriptures and he's showing us how it is all true and that we are called to obey. And so then brings us to a brief objection, which is this. Jay, isn't that just works righteousness then? Like, aren't you just saying, like, you're preaching grace, you're preaching salvation by faith alone, you're preaching that, but then you're saying, okay, but you also have to obey everything that Jesus called. Isn't that, isn't that what you're saying here? And that's why this verse is so difficult and so challenging. But when he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's be really clear. When there are hard passages in scriptures and unclear passages in scripture, we let the clearer passages define them and help us understand them. So let's be really clear. Works are not the way you are saved. Period. Paul says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I could give you at least a dozen other examples off the top of my head right now to just say the same thing from Paul, from Peter, from Mary, just kidding, from Paul, from Peter, um, from Jesus. That's for my 60s people there. There you go. Throw out a little nugget for you. Teenagers have no idea what I'm saying right now. It's great. Um, they're not required. It's faith in Christ alone. But faith without works is dead. Also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is a great verse to explain why I cringe when people just say, like, well, do you believe in God? Oh, great. Yeah, they believe in God. So do the demons. The demons believe in even more strongly than you and me because they've seen him, right? They shudder. They believe, they understand who Jesus is even better than we do because they shudder in fear while we are often so flippant about it. And so we know faith without works is dead. Jesus says, 
This is how they will know you're my disciples. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another because that's the commandment he's given us. Now, this is why not only is this not works righteousness, but it's actually incredibly good news. This is part of what Jesus is doing when he's flipping the world upside down. The kingdom is this upside down. It is good news. This kingdom of like even the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, like you have to have that to be in the kingdom. And he's about to say, like, this is why it's good news. Because of this. They had always seen the commandments of God as a bar they had to achieve so that God would be pleased with them and love them. They saw it as a burden to bear. But now in Christ, that the kingdom has come to earth, for those who belong to the kingdom, it gets flipped upside down. And these are no longer bars that have to be achieved, but promises that are being delivered. So far from being a burden, they are a gift. So when you see the righteousness that is commanded in Scripture, it is not Jesus saying, hey, make sure you do this, because if you don't, I'm kicking you out. He is saying, this is who you are becoming. This is who you will be. This is already your identity, and now you get to walk in it. So far from being a burden, they are a gift. Jesus is saying, if you believe me, if you see the kingdom as a treasure in a field, then you will obey everything I've commanded you because the reward is so great. Abiding in me is so great. Imagine, imagine if I said, hey, I need some work done around the church. Just some like odds and ends. And at the end of that day, I'm going to give you $10 million dollars. Just some, you know, got to move some things around in storage, you know, and we got to clean up after D-Now. Like, well, I guess maybe that wouldn't be worth it if it was the middle school boys' room. So, but most of it, like, just you got you to gotta just clean up and you just, we're just going to work together. You know, we're just going to work and at the end of the day, $10 million. Most of you would probably say, um, sure, I'd do that. But there's more. But wait, there's more. Not only do you get $10 million dollars, but I want you to picture somebody that you miss dearly. Somebody that you have not seen in a long time, maybe, maybe because of death or because of broken relationship, but you miss them and you desperately would love to be with them again. And imagine, we said, they're going to do the work with you today. They're going to join you in the work, that the jobs that we have to, to do, have you to do. And so if you're moving stuff from one room to another, you're doing it with that person. If you're cleaning bathrooms, it is with that person. And as you work on that day, you get to talk with them. You get to hug them. You get to be with them. And at the end of the day, you get $10 million. Could that possibly be the best day of your life? That is what Jesus is offering. That is abundant life. He's promising us these treasures in heaven, and he says, but wait, there's more. I am with you. You will abide in me, and I will abide in you. 
That's what he means when he says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have a life and have it abundantly. Has anger ever given you abundant life? Has hating your enemy ever given you abundant life? Has being seen as righteous as for, by others ever given you abundant life? Has getting revenge on someone ever given you abundant life? Jesus gives abundant life. I think what Jesus is saying is, it, it will, and it'll shine brighter here as we go on to the chapter and the next chapters. If you believe me, if you believe what I am saying about the kingdom and about me and about how this all works, you'll obey everything. You won't water it down at all. You won't minimize it at all. You will joyfully obey as much as, as any person would who would see a treasure in a field and sell all that they had to gain it. And if you don't, if you change what he has said, if you trust in the world's ways, if you pursue temporary treasures over eternal ones, then you don't really believe him. And then he's saying you don't, you're not a part of the kingdom. If you change his word, then you have authority. If you pick and choose or rewrite, rewrite the test, then you are your own defender, your own justifier, your own deliverer. But he is our deliverer. He is our refuge. He is our king. And so these acts of obedience are not meant to be a burden, but a gift. So how do we pursue this? How is this really lived out in good news? Well, one, we just receive that gift, that he has fulfilled this and given us his righteousness. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or what is referred to as the great exchange, that Jesus gives us his righteousness and takes our sin. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the great exchange. That is our identity. Whatever sin you have committed, Jesus has already taken it. Whatever thing God has commanded, Jesus has already lived it. And that is a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. And we are given that righteousness so that we might walk in it. And so knowing that that is our identity so that we can walk in it, we also need to understand that he has given us the spirit who empowers us to walk in this righteousness. So I read that earlier from John 14, but look at the context. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father. So if you say, well, if you love me, I'll keep my commandments. All right, well, there's that works righteousness stuff. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So not only is he our righteousness, but he empowers us to walk in the righteousness he has given us through the Holy Spirit. That's why it's a promise. 
And as you respond in faith, you, you grow. Your spirit changes. Your heart changes. You start out by maybe just biting your tongue in faith and not saying the thing that grew in your heart. But then you pray for the person who persecutes you in faith. And over time, your concern for that person grows. Your compassion for that person grows. You desire for them to know Jesus. Your desire for them to know Jesus grows. And, and before you know it, you are loving your neighbor as yourself. That's what encountering the Holy Spirit has done in us. And we're seeing that right now in Wilmore, Kentucky. Have you guys seen this, read the, at Asbury College, the revival that's happening there? Which, by the way, can I just say, man, all the energy that's being spent on bickering about a revival after we've all been praying for a revival just, like, dumbfounds me. But whatever. Okay. Here's what stuck out to me. I'll just tell you what stuck out to me. It's not all the singing, which is awesome. It's not the lifting of hands, which is awesome. It's not all the prayers, which is awesome. All the testimonies, it was awesome. Here's what brought tears to my eyes. Came from the gas station owner across the street from the campus whose business has been totally sent in upheaval because thousands of people are sending on Wilmore, Kentucky right now. And yes, he's getting a lot of business from people stopping there, but anybody who's a business owner knows that that kind of upheaval is both a blessing and a curse, a burden. And he kind of had that tension, and he said this. He said, but, you know, I've never met such nice people. People are inside donating to us. It's a blessing in disguise, man. It came out of nowhere. That is called the fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know, is this of God or is it not, what is the fruit that is being manifested? And when people are in lines that are a mile and a half long to try to get to this chapel so that they can participate in that, and they go into the gas station, and they're out of Doritos, and a person says, hey, can I pray for you? This is such a blessing that you guys are open. Can I give you extra money for this? That is evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. They're talking about how on the campus people are being kinder and gentler to one another, that they're bearing with one another in their burdens. It's beautiful. That is what we look at. That is what the Spirit empowers us to do and be. So the last encouragement is just don't let up. So cling to his righteousness, right? Be empowered by the Spirit and don't let up. Don't let sin hang around for a second. Battle it because it is holding you back from receiving the promises of God and enjoying the abundant life that he has given you. Obedience to Jesus matters because it is the good life. And our sin keeps us from that. Not to oversimplify things, but anytime you find it difficult to obey Jesus or to live as a citizen of the kingdom, it's not because he has set such a high bar for us, like, well, who could possibly do that? It's because we don't believe him. Because in that moment, you and I are believing that the treasures the world has to offer is better than kingdom treasures. When you want to make a snide comment about someone you see, either because you think they're cruel or confused or whatever, you are believing that the treasure the world offers you namely feeling smug or self-righteous or getting a laugh, is better than the kingdom treasure of bearing with one another. 
When you get angry at your spouse or a friend and hold a grudge, you are believing that the treasures of the world, exacting your pound of flesh, getting your vengeance, your payment, making sure they know that they are wrong and you are right, you're believing that that is better than the kingdom treasures that Jesus offers us to love one another and to forgive as we have been forgiven. So confront it as unbelief. Fight against it. Call others to help you with that. Don't miss out on a single piece of joy that he is offering you in the kingdom. Don't let a single iota. Jesus didn't come to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. He is worthy. Trust in him. Believe him. Follow him. Don't miss out on the abundant life he has offered. So when we read these words and the ones to come in the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Let us remember that Jesus did not come to do away with God's word. He came to fulfill it. He is the word. He affirms its authority in our lives. He calls us to receive it in power and be obedient to it, to believe him. And he empowers us to obey and be changed and find life so that the world may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, you are good and holy. And Lord, even as we tackle a passage, as we've tackled a passage like this, that we say, man, I, I still, like, what does it mean, God? How, how do we have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees? But Lord, we know that, Lord Jesus, you are our righteousness. And it far exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees because you are not just described as righteous. You are righteousness. So Lord, I pray that you would help us, that you would stir our hearts, that you would move us to see in Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all things, to read all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus, to hear them as authoritative, to realize that these are true words. None of these are going to pass away until they are fully accomplished, but to not see that call to obedience as a burden to bear or a bar or a hurdle that we have to jump over, but that you flipped it upside down. You are not sitting at the top of a ledge calling us to climb up. You are in the pit with us, and you rescue us and pull us out. And that empowered by the Holy Spirit, we actually can live lives like this. All the things that are to come, Lord, we can actually live the life that you have given us, the life that is abundant. Help us to believe. Make it be true. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.